You're a slave to your digital device, and the folks who sold it to you are your feudal lords. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The Internet of Things is sending us back to the Middle Ages. That's the view of Joshua Fairfield, professor of law at Washington and Lee University. He says that Internet-connected devices have put us in the position of unwilling providers of massive amounts of personal information to device manufacturers and merchandisers. Your devices are tracking every move you make online and the smallest bits of information that you provide to every website and personal contact. The result is a shadow social network that buys and sells information about the tastes and habits of consumers without their consent. That cute little automated room cleaner, for example, knows the layout of your house. What's more, you don't really own your devices at all, let alone the content you draw from them. If you try to hack the software in your very own Internet-enabled car, you could be guilty of copyright infraction. Welcome to the world of digital serfdom. Let's learn about the extent of the problem and what we can do about it. Here is my conversation with Joshua Fairfield. Joshua Fairfield, welcome to the show. Bob, thanks for having me. With regard to the Internet of Things, you have talked about what you call digital serfdom. Could you describe what that means? Well, if you think about what serfdom was originally, it was a way of deciding who owned what by reference to relationships of power. So the king owned everything, and then some barons maybe were infudated to the king. That is, they held their land through him. And then so on down to knights and peasants, each one only having rights to their property because of their relationship with a person over top of them. And when you look at how the Internet of Things is being set up, it's a very, very similar situation. Consider the old famous by now problem of Amazon deleting George Orwell's 1984 from people's Kindles. Mm -hmm. What happened there was that people had bought George Orwell's 1984, bought it free and clear, and it was living on their Kindles. But Amazon then had a dispute because the company that had listed 1984, in fact, didn't have the rights to do so from George Orwell's estate. So there was a fight among the barons, so to speak. Hmm. And because there was a fight among the barons, all the peasants lost their property. Amazon reached into the Kindles, deleted George Orwell's 1984 and one of the more poorly managed, we'll say, PR disasters of the 21st century and gave us a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Another one would be the example that I start my book with, which is slightly salacious. Uh, there's an old myth. It's not actually historically true that feudal lords were permitted to have sex with the peasant woman before she were she was married 
That's not true? That's not true. Historians went back. <laughs> There's that, It turns out that it was too good of a story to drop. And so later on in the Victorian era, people thought it was too hot to stop talking about. But here's what is true. In 2016, as I was finishing up the book, Standard Innovation, the creators of the popular couple's erotic massage device, WeVibe, was revealed to have been extracting data about everything about the couple's use of this smartphone-enabled vibrator, specifically things like vibration intensity, patterns, times and frequency of use. And they were tying them ostensibly, said the later lawsuit, to people's real identity and email addresses. Oh, my God. Now, that's the kind of arrogance that even real feudal lords didn't have the guts to go through with. It, it turns out that the the medieval version of the story isn't true. The modern Internet of Things version of it is true. And so wow. when we've got people claiming them, the companies who sell us our everyday devices, essentially claiming that what they've sold us, they still own and control. That is an old way of running the land where the feudal lord says, sure, here, you can farm this land, but I still control it even though you live on it. That's serfdom. Yeah, didn't it start in the modern age with with music, movies, and books? Those were given to us over the internet with the had we bothered to read the terms of service, right. <laughs> we would have seen that we are not owners of that material. If you get a book a, a book on tape from Audible, sure. they will tell you you don't own this book. You just own the right to listen to it, and we can take it off, and you can't transfer it to another device if you want. Same with Kindle. Same with music streaming now. So I wonder if that was a way to kind of get the modern-day consumer used to the concept. That's right. And the example of online movies and books sort of sets up the two big problems for why ordinary everyday property rights didn't happen to make the jump online. The first is that intellectual property took over everything. So if we buy a CD, if I buy Britney Spears' Toxic, I own the physical copy of the CD. I still have that property interest. But of course, uh, Brittany or whoever holds her copyrights these days, they own the copyright, the right to make more copies. That was a stable compromise. The artist owns the right to the music. The consumer owns the right to the individual recording. But courts got confused with the Internet. They got confused because they didn't see a physical copy in the consumer's hands. Mm -hmm. And so these days, one of my students said to me the other day, I, I bought your book, Professor Fairfield. I hope you didn't mind that I didn't buy the Kindle version. And I said, well, of course I don't mind. I feel like I should write a prologue to the book saying, if you bought the Kindle version, I'm so sorry, because it's an example of the problem. You simply don't own the Kindle version when you would own the very same book if you'd bought it in physical form. Isn't it inevitable? Doesn't it come with technology? I mean, just as you say, you don't own anything physical when you buy uh, something online. That's the difficulty. Of course, we own piles of things that aren't physical. In fact, part of the book argues that all of ownership has nothing to do with physicality at all. So here are some things that you own that aren't physical. Your bank account, your stock portfolio, heck, your Bitcoin holdings, your magic swords and video games, your MP3s, your purchased movies online. All of these are examples of the kind of things that it's perfectly possible to own. I'll add another one, um, a domain name. There's a famous case in California saying essentially anything that is susceptible to unique possession can be owned. So you can own an internet do domain name or an entry in any other kind of list. 
And in fact, if you look at it very carefully, even a lot of the things that we think of as purely physical aren't. Take your house, for example. What shows that you own the house? There's no sort of magical line around your house showing that it's yours. Mm -hmm. It's a paper. It's a piece of paper with information. It's an entry in a database. Now, it happens to be a particularly dusty database that only lawyers would tend to look at, but it's just an entry in a database. We own houses the same way we own bitcoins. It's just that bitcoins use a better database. Well, I'll give you another example of something we don't own that we haven't owned for a long time. That is credit cards. Credit card companies are quite clear that we are giving you this card. You don't own it. Right. We can take it back anytime we want. That's right. So again, there's the consumer getting used to the idea of having something that they don't own. Right. That's a great example because that's something physical that you don't own. And we're talking <laughs> yeah, about, so it works we're both talking ways. about non-physical things that you do own. The point is courts got confused. There was never this rule that if it's intangible, you can't own it. And if it's tangible, you can own it. That just was never the rule. But Mm -hmm. courts got confused in the early 90s, and because of a series of really bad decisions coming out of California, that got stuck into the law. So one of the purposes of the book is really to try to get that unstuck in courts' minds. Yeah, well, now now along comes the Internet of Things, and we're back to actual physical things, That's physical right. devices, That's right. re- refrigerators and, uh, and, and different things like that. And yet, do we own those? <laughs> uh, we might own the physical refrigerator, and but that's something – Right. That's what they claim. They claim it's kind of like your car dealer offering to sell you a car, Mm -hmm. but retaining ownership of the motor. (laughs) That's not that's not the best way to run property ownership. But that is the claim. They say when you buy a smartphone, the company's claim is you own sort of that eighth of an inch of plastic around the outside. But all of the actual functional software that makes the thing tick. You don't own that at all. You've got no rights over it. You've got no claim to it. But they don't want to charge you prices that reflect that. If Verizon were to sell a bunch of cell phones saying, basically, we're just renting these to you, people would pay very different prices than if Verizon said, we're selling these to you. So they're very, very careful to use the language of ownership, buying and selling when they're getting your money. They're very careful to not use the language of ownership. That is, they use words like licensing once they've got your money. Even though you're locked in for two years and you exactly. can't use it for any other carrier or anything like that. In. Because you're locked in, precisely. Okay, so a lot of this is, is pretty theoretical. But now we talk about the actual ramifications of the situation. And you brought it up right at the beginning, the issue of privacy. What concerns you more? The use of the Internet of, of Things devices to, to invade consumer privacy or its exposure to hackers and the danger to you, to your information actually being hacked and used for nefarious purposes? Both are serious risks. We've got moderately good defenses against hackers using your information for nefarious purposes. And Frankly, the bank's bad business model is on the bank. So the major threat of your information being used for nefarious purposes is not broad-based. It's very simple. It's identity theft. And it's been for a long time very clear that having your name and your social security number tied to the ability that anyone who has your name and social security number can set up a bank loan in your name, that's just nonsense. We can have other, far more secure ways of proving that it's you. And in the era of encryption, multi-factor authentication, and so on, there's no reason for us to be using our name, social security number, and addresses 
as the key to our economic future. Now we're into facial recognition, right. fingerprinting and, and stuff like that. Right. We, we, can, we can prove it's you in ways that don't rely on lists that – like the lists that Equifax lost, losing the data of a large number of purchasing adults in the United States. Uh-huh. So that's step one. The hacker's threat is because the banks have a stupid business model. The privacy threat is because the advertising companies have an evil business model. You would put it that strongly, right? That's different. They rely entirely on extracting data that the customer has no idea is being extracted and then using it, essentially purchasing from a seller who's got all of your purchase history data is like playing economic poker against somebody who can see your cards. You're just not going to win. You're not going to get what economists call the surplus of the deal. They will get all of the surplus of the deal because, as one book um, recently put out by uh, Monasek stated, they will charge you all you can pay, the maximum price that you're willing to pay because they know that they've been able to discover it. And because of that, we thought the internet was free. It could have been fair. We could have a regular exchange of goods and services for information. I don't particularly care if I offer some information about me to a goods or service provider and they provide advertisement in response. As a form of a loyalty card or something I, like that. Something like that. Yeah. That's fine. The problem is, is that what started as a fair exchange has now escalated to exploitation. And we can see this in a Washington Post article actually that came along yesterday exposing the business underpinnings of the Equifax hack and how the Equifax hack shows that companies simply do not have to be responsive to consumers at all. And Equifax sent people to a fake website. They sent people to an unresponsive website that gave people the wrong answers. Uh, mm-hmm. People have been running in circles trying to get customer service. Customer service doesn't have to exist because the companies tend to hold all the cards in these data dossier cases. People have no idea. I gave a talk yesterday um, and a law professor said to me, oh, I don't really care all that much about Facebook. I don't use it. Of course, he was unaware that Facebook gathers information about everyone and puts it together in a shadow social network for advertising purposes. They just gather the information from the devices of the people who are around you, your spouse, your friends, what have you. And then they're able to build the dossier about you. There's nothing wrong with the basic exchange. The difficulty is that the other business conditions right now in the online industry are such that we have reached the levels of exploitation so high, for example, that Apple, when Apple said, you know what, we're going to protect consumer privacy by stopping cross-site tracking using cookies, the advertisers reacted as if this was the end of the internet, as if they needed to be able to track people across every website that they visit when they go online, despite those consumers' precautions, or else not get paid at all. Those aren't really the alternatives. We can have fair advertisements and fair exchange of data without enabling the secret tracking of consumers everywhere they go online. Well, you say that, but it seems to me that we're in an age when for merchandisers, the data is at least as important and possibly more important than the products they sell. Well, certainly because it's how they sell the products. Absolutely. What needs to happen is that that exchange needs to be brought out into the open not gathered secretly and not gathered across tracking from one side of the internet to the other. If consumers want to be tracked in return for goods and services, that's fine. But that's not the deal that's happening right now. What's happening right now is people are offered an app 
And they don't really understand that the app has now scraped their entire contact list, their calendar, and so on and so forth. And have and possess back doors that allow the merchandisers to get in and well, install targeted right. ads. Well, that's right. So if you were tracking the news, security researchers just a couple of days ago found that the popular Android Go keyboard, even the keyboard that people were using to enter things, was extracting data and sending it to the Chinese originator company. And you point out interesting things like we don't even realize just how many devices out there are susceptible to this. Fish tank. Yes. You said. Um <laughs> <laughs> My God. I mean, that's the way they broke in. They broke into the fish tank of a casino. And um, Roomba cleans your house and maps your apartment or your house and sends that information out to somebody. I mean, that's astonishing. Never even occurred to me that that would be the case. And the and more yet, advanced versions are the cross-device ones, the ones yeah. in which a an audio beacon is projected from your television and your smartphone picks up the audio beacon so that the smartphone is essentially acting as a bug within your living room to tell the advertisers which television advertisements you're watching. So we're, we can have the devices talk to each other actually through your physical space without you knowing that it's happening. Okay, so here's the scariest question that I have. Do consumers, and especially younger consumers, give a damn about this? Have they willingly given up their privacy? Have they made a deal with the devil in exchange for all this great technology? They don't, they don't care that their privacy is being, uh, being broken into, or are they simply ignorant of it and they would care if they knew? Well, I think that the statement that people don't care, you hear people like Mark Zuckerberg say, you know, privacy is dead. And then yeah. Mark Zuckerberg spends tens of millions of dollars buying up the houses around his house in Palo Alto <laughs> and remodeling them in order to maintain his privacy. I think that a lot of this claim that people don't care doesn't come from those people. It comes from very specific tech CEOs whose business it is to extract as much of this data and pay as little as possible for it. So I don't think we need to take the argument enormously seriously. And in fact, the data shows that the argument that people don't care is just simply false. So Pew had a, a range of surveys, and they are routinely in the 90 plus percent range that people feel that their data is being taken without their permission, without their consent, that they're distressed about it, that they care about it. They simply feel that they have no choice. This is becoming, I think, really learned helplessness is the problem more than young people. I don't want to sound like some sort of old grouch. Oh, kids today don't get the technology. No, I think they get it. And they're just in despair over it. They know that there's nothing they can do to stop this. Let me pick up from that. Yeah, go ahead. From a realistic, practical standpoint, how can we break the chains of serfdom? It sounds like we're locked in forever. Right. The huge numbers of devices, <laughs> the complexity, the way that merchandisers have just in sure. part of our every lives. Sure. How do you put that in reverse? Sure. Well, there's a couple of methods that range from the simple to the sophisticated. The most important one to break the chains of serfdom is ad blocking. Now, to be clear, ad blocking does not protect your privacy. You're being tracked anyway. And I love these proposals by the advertising associations where they say, look, install a special tracking cookie on your computer so that we know, <laughs> not, so that we know not to track you. Really? Mm -hmm. Really? But on a broader sense, blocking ads is a way of protesting the economic model that caused the overreach. Until companies are willing to promise you 
that in return for whitelisting them through your ad blocker, they will use your information only for purposes of that website. Our only real recourse is to push back in the pocketbook. Now, there are some other ways that Silicon Valley folk, uh, you know, they talk to their families. And, and I always found it interesting when I was talking to some of my friends who are Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. What they do is they simply require that their children lie about everything all the time. So all data that you give to any one of these devices more or less has to be false to try to poison the system. It doesn't work particularly well, though, because through what we call sensor fusion, it's pretty easy to figure out that the person's simply lying. I'll give you an example of this. I, I just reinstalled Skype for this conversation. And for whatever reason, it now demands my birth date. And so I always enter the joke birth date, April 1st, 1984, in reference to April Fool's Day and George Howard mm -hmm. Orwell's book. That's a, a standard mode of resistance that you hear among the people who actually design these technologies. Going deeper, though, to some of the things that I said in the book, we need the right to be able to hack and modify our devices to exercise the ancient property right of exclusion. The one thing that you can do when you buy land is kick other people off of it. That's the one legal right exclusion that all other legal rights in property kind of stem from. What people don't have right now is a legal right of exclusion to kick invasive advertisers off of their own devices. To do that, you often need to hack the device. There are intellectual property laws that often make you into a copyright infringer of all silly things. If you modify your own device, but people have to. So this is why farmers um, in the Midwest are hacking their John Deere tractors using Ukrainian firmware because they can't fix their own tractors. The diagnostic software won't work unless they go to an expensive official John Deere dealership that has the diagnostic software's other end. But aren't you assuming a level of technological sophistication on the part of the consumer that would allow right. them it's, to be able exist. to hack? Well, that's no. true. On the other hand, that's why I raised the point that farmers are hacking their John Deere tractors. These are enormously sophisticated pieces of equipment. And the farmers, although some of them dabble in coding, are not known to be sort of the on the leading edge of white hat hackery. That said... You can use exploits that other people develop in order to crack your software, in order to crack your devices fairly quickly. We see this all the time. There are whole forums online dedicated to how to jailbreak or unlock your smartphone. That's where these farmers got the Ukrainian firmware from. People, hackers do develop it, and then you and I can use these exploits in sort of a scripted fashion to get into our devices. Now, it's perfectly technically possible. In fact, it's not hard at all. It's not particularly legal unless the librarian of Congress has made a specific exception in naming your specific technology. So at different times, it's been perfectly legal to hack your smartphone and until it wasn't. And then it was perfectly legal to hack your tablet, but then it wasn't. And these days, I think, I looked at it the other day, it's fine for you to tinker with your smart car but not to get somebody else to help you tinker with your smart car. And you can't tinker with your tractor. So if your car has really big wheels and it gets designated a tractor, ooh, suddenly you're a filthy hacker if you get into your own tractor, but you're not if you can write the code to get into your own car. The system's a mess. Every few years, we go back to the Librarian of Congress, who's got this list of 
who's in the club and who's out of the club. And that list is enormously lobbied by companies who want their particular products, Internet of Things products, excluded from the list so that owners are locked out of their own property. Okay, just about out of time, but I just want to know if you're proposing legislative relief, regulatory relief, or just good old <laughs> capitalist solutions where we stop buying this stuff, or right. is it a combination of all of those? It's a combination of all of those, but with a f strong focus on just stop buying this stuff combined with common law relief, which is that judges, I think, are starting to wake up to the fact that a lot of the common law cases that locked consumers out of their property were a mistake. And we're seeing more and more of these judges say these cases are no longer about copyright law. When a manufacturer locks a consumer out of the car and saying you can't modify your own car. This happened in the wake of Irma, for example. Tesla owners suddenly found that their cars could drive much faster. And much, yeah. not, much, their batteries not lasted faster, longer. Not much faster. Yeah. Their, their batteries lasted much longer after a software patch. And – but it would have been illegal under some readings of the law for them to hack into the car, break the lock off, and modify their car to drive further. Now, whether or not you think there are safety concerns, and there, there may well be, the question is whether an owner has the right to do it. And what we're finding is that that's not a copyright consideration. The rules that lock owners out of modifying their own property were meant to stop people from making illegal copies of movies and music. That law didn't work. You can go on YouTube and listen to any song you want. There are lots of places where you can download stuff illegally. Please don't do it. But the copy protection side of that law never worked. But they misused that law then to lock people out of doing perfectly legal things like modifying their own car to drive further. Yeah. And I okay. think as courts understand that that was a mistake, we can get some of this rolled back. Well, I hear a glimmer of hope in your voice, although I don't know if I agree with you based on the dire situation that you sketched out for him. You've depressed me so much that I won't – that I can't go along with your little bit, bit of hope. Anyway, uh, Joshua Fairfield, I've, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Your book is called Owned, Property, Privacy, and the New Digital Serfdom, and I will link to that in the show notes to our episode. Thanks so much for being with me today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. That was my conversation with Joshua Fairfield of Washington and Lee University talking about digital barons and their serfs. That's us, by the way. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.